You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 18th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Israel's allies become increasingly unsubtle about hinting that Israel should wind it in. North Korea resumes its air assault upon Japanese fish, and women having short hair is terrible, apparently. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Nina Dos Santos and Sir William Patey will discuss the day's big stories and we will hear the case for Christmas pudding. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Nina Dos Santos, international broadcast correspondent and former Europe editor for CNN, and by Sir William Patey, political consultant and former British diplomat. Hello to you both. Hello Hello there, Andrew. Um, First of all, Nina, do you have Christmas plans? It is that time of year at which I ask people what their Christmas plans are. In about a week's time, I'm going to be heading towards Lisbon um, and I'll be enjoying Christmas. Cod, bacalhau at Christmas, which is sacrosanct. It's so sacrosanct that I've actually done a piece for it here on Monocle Radio with a Portuguese chef. Um, And, you know, I won't have to cook anything. Hopefully I might help with the washing up. But that's the joy of having in-laws who like cooking cod. (laughs) But don't the Portuguese eat cod basically all the time? Do they just eat more of it at Christmas? It really is, as I was saying before, it, it, it's the sacrosanct dish at Christmas. If you don't eat cod because you can't cook it properly <laughs> in Portugal, it's considered, um, you know, a failure. And in fact, funnily enough, having married into a Portuguese family about 13 years ago, I discovered quickly that different parts of the family cook it differently and turn their noses up at each other's recipes. So the politics of, you know, how cod is consumed over the dinner table keeps you entertained each year, I must say. OK, well, I, I look forward to hearing about the blazing row which perpetrates about, a, about the bacalhau. Yeah, yeah, a, gener- a generations-long Dos Santos family schism about the correct means of cooking cod. Uh, William, we will shortly be discussing the Middle East, but it turns out that the Houthi rebels, the Iran-backed militia currently operating out of Yemen, may have scuppered your summer plans. Yeah, well, my spring plans. I was going to be lecturing on a tour uh, from Mumbai to Athens via the Bab al-Mandeb Straits, the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. And uh, now that the Houthis are firing at vessels, I don't know quite what the uh, quite what the situation is going to be but, when I'm due to be there. But you you were going to be lecturing right in Middle Eastern issues. Now, surely sailing literally right through a Middle Eastern issue would give your speeches a certain amount of you know contemporaneity. Oh, I'm up for it, you know, and, I, and I, 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 I'm up for it, and I'm willing to scare the living daylights about them, about how bad the how bad the Middle East is. But I suspect, as this is a fair-paying cruise, the usual clientele of older Americans, shall we say, may not be quite as enthusiastic. I mean, just you. imagine though, if you got onto the subject of the Houthi rebels the very instant they their helicopter descended on the foredeck, that'd be amazing. Yes, I could. Uh, I could see how that would be quite exciting for some people. <laughs> <laughs> or drones. Drones, yes. Well, oh, they'll be shot out of the sky. I, I fully expect there'll be an international flotilla in the Red Sea by the time the cruise is due to go. 
Well, we have that to look forward to, but we will start with the Middle East as it is now. And during previous incursions into Gaza, Israel has always understood that a stopwatch, the one measuring the tolerance of their allies for punitive violence, is ticking towards zero. During the current assault, a retaliation for the Hamas attacks on Israel of October 7th, Israel has paid less heed to such opinion, arguing that the horrors perpetrated by Hamas elevate the current struggle to existential us-or-them levels. Restraint is nevertheless being urged and from some unusual quarters. US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin is in Israel today. In the UK, senior Conservatives, including the Chair of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee and a former Defence Secretary, worry out loud that Israel is ceding moral high ground at best, breaking humanitarian law at worst. Um, William, first of all, is Israel likely to be listening to any of this? No, the only person they'll listen to is Lloyd Austin, and as long as the Americans give them the licence to uh, continue with their campaign, they may adjust it a bit. I, I listened to the Lloyd Austin, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you all are uh, um uh, press conference uh, and there was no there, there was certainly no sign that they were calling a halt but there was certainly a sign that Austin was saying to him you need to do things differently and there are some signs that maybe the Israelis are going to do things differently but until the Americans say you know you've got to stop uh, what anybody else says will have no impact. Um, the calls for restraint, Nina, are becoming increasingly uh, unanimous from those countries which can usually be relied upon to to back Israel fairly forthrightly. But do you get the sense that the US and the UK and France and Germany and Australia and others are actually acting from concern about the state of the Middle East, or is this becoming a question of domestic politics for a lot of them? The US in particular, Joe Biden obviously wants to keep his party together, and he is reliant on the votes next November of quite a few states with substantial Arab populations. I think the answer to that is, on the one hand, it's probably an issue of both. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also depends where you are and which country you're speaking for. So obviously up until this weekend, which was the real game changer, uh, we saw Israel's staunchest allies here in Europe and in the United States, you know, continue to vociferously back Israel despite concerns of the civilian casualty number, which by the way now um, numbers 19,000 mm-hmm. people in Gaza, which is huge. But then David Cameron, the UK Foreign Secretary, and Alena Baerbock, um, obviously of Germany, and Ketan Colonna of France, got together and wrote this op-ed piece saying, well, look, we now urge a longer humanitarian pause, not a ceasefire outright, but some kind of um, pause in the hostilities. We saw Grant Shapps, the UK Defence Secretary, also take to similar newspapers published in The Times and Welt am Sonntag, saying that, you know, now there's a real risk that the civilian casualties, um, that are thanks to starvation, dehydration, lack of sanitation, are going to be are going to dwarf those numbers killed already by the bombardment. So there's a concern here that if they don't get together and try and at least call for more aid to go in and people to be helped, that um, it's going to be politically toxic both at home and in the United States. And you point out quite rightfully that in the US this is a big issue for Joe Biden. That's why we saw him sort of 
uh, fine-tune his message, didn't he, over the last few days towards uh, the right-wing elements of Benjamin Netanyahu's government. He's under pressure with Kamala Harris breaking ranks on this issue. And, you know, the polls show that he's being punished by some of the younger voters who think that there should be more calls out on Israel's behaviour in Gaza. Um, William, Israel has pointed out uh, in so many words that history contains few, if any, examples of a nation-state pausing an existential war in order to deliver supplies and aid to its enemies. Yes, well, and they're, they're probably right. I mean, they've set certain goals which, in, in my view, are unattainable mm. to wipe Hamas out. Uh, they're certainly unattainable within any acceptable humanitarian price for the rest of the world because they would involve killing many more than 19,000. Which is uh, already passes. getting on for 1% of the population yeah. of Gaza. It's a ludicrous number of civilian casualties. Mm. So, uh, I mean, I, I read David Cameron's article. He's talking about sustainable ceasefire. So he's, making, he's linking a ceasefire with some... Uh, political progress, some political horizon. You can't just stop fighting, and it's probably true. You can't just stop fighting. It would certainly need to be a ceasefire on both sides. Hamas would have to give up firing rockets. They'd have to, uh, they'd probably have to disarm. So, actually, if you were an Israeli, offering a ceasefire might be quite a good thing to do because it would be quite surprising if, if Hamas would agree to it. And, and can I also point out, you're seeing a bit of a change um, in you know, the language used in the United States as well. I'm looking at a copy of today's New York Times, which is right on the front page here, an op-ed piece um, talking about the recognition of Palestine by the United States here. It says that um, the United States should recognise the state of Palestine and join 139 other countries in doing so. Now, obviously, um, that, I presume, is nowhere near on the cards at the moment, but the fact that you're seeing talk like this from some of the big New York newspapers, again, gives you an idea that there's a sense of the change of the tone here, isn't it, underway even in the United States? Yes, and it's happening here. The The, the British position has always been, we'd only recognise Palestine as part of a, a wider political mm. settlement. And it may be that the recognition of a Palestinian state is the first step towards a process, a negotiated process, because what you need at the moment, you need to rebalance uh, the the negotiating strengths of either side because the Palestinians, if they had a state, would be negotiating not about their existence, which is currently what is threatened, uh, existential certainly for the Palestinians, I don't know about the Israelis, but you'd be negotiating your borders. You wouldn't be negotiating anything else. And it'd be a big step for the US. I can see Britain reaching this step a bit earlier. Um, Nina, there is, of course, this new resolution going before the UN Security Council later. I, I assume, or I think we can assume, that the United States will probably veto it in the way that they do. But do you, is there any prospect of the US getting to the point of exasperation where it does wave through a UN Security Council resolution on Israel to, to give it a rest? I'm not sure I can see that. That seems premature. But mm. I'm, no, I'm no diplomat or expert. Um, but that sounds premature for the moment, but certainly the fact that you're seeing, you know, more challenges here at the UN Security Council on this issue. I remember, I think it was Brazil, wasn't it, that put forward the first uh, attempted resolution at this, which was immediately shot down by the United States again, saying, well, look, calling for a ceasefire at this point is premature, and that was in the early days. Lots of diplomatic legwork, obviously, behind the scenes for these things. But it really just, um, again, changes the narrative, changes the pressure, and whether or not the pressure is going to come from behind the scenes, obviously, the pressure that, that comes from behind the scenes to negotiate these types of ceasefires it comes via countries like Qatar. Um, so, you know, 
it just changes the narrative, changes the pressure, but whether or not we'd see it officially, I doubt it. And then, of course, you know, there's a lot of concern about whether or not the United Nations has any say at all, really, um, whether or not it makes a difference, including from presidential candidates like, for instance, Donald Trump. Um, William, just finally on this, because I, I do want to draw on your experience as an ambassador over a quite a wide swath uh, of the Middle East. Are you surprised by how relatively muted reaction to the last few months of Israel's campaign has been from other Arab governments. There's been a lot less of the somewhat theatrical fury you've come to associate with Israel's incursions into Gaza during this, which is Israel's biggest ever incursion into Gaza. I, th- I was reading an article today about Saudi Arabia keeping quiet and the UAE keeping quiet, and I was rather struck by the, the they don't want to be spun, so they don't want to talk about the future Mm. uh, because Netanyahu's been very good at spinning that his way. So they've kept silent about the future. There's nothing much to be said at the moment except the fighting must stop. And they're all saying that. They're all saying the fighting must stop. Uh, And I don't think they want to get into a conversation yet about what comes next. Um, But the, the, the anger in the Arab world is beyond what I've ever seen. Oh, I'm sure, but that, uh, and, and, and that normally puts pressure on the regimes. You're quite right, but I think I think the regimes are sharing some of the anger, but they don't. They're not making any statements, uh, and I think I, I think you're quite right. They've been a bit a bit muted compared compared with others. But I think the argument that they don't want their uh, their statements to be spun by Netanyahu and others is probably quite a powerful one. Okay. And can I can I just also point out um, that obviously Netanyahu's political future is quite weak, isn't it? So what is the added benefit of um, these countries being as vociferous as they have done in the past? Because obviously they know that um, in a, perhaps in a couple of months' time Netanyahu might be in a power. I mean, they have let the, they have let various Israeli statements just pass that says, oh. The, the Arab countries will build, uh, will rebuild Gaza. We can look to them. That won't happen this time. I don't think there'll be any rebuilding unless it's linked to some political settlement that is in the future. So I, I, I actually think, I think you're right, Netanyahu will go. I think this is a game changer in the Middle East, given what's happened and the extent of this. And it may be a game changer that the right-wing settlers and the most the most extreme uh, Israelis may not like. Well, to North Korea, which appears to be undergoing one of its periodic sulks to the effect that insufficient attention is being paid to it, the weirdo hermit kingdom has conducted its first intercontinental ballistic missile test for five months, resuming its sporadic bombardment of the Sea of Japan with what was probably a Hwasong-18 missile. North Korea has launched a few of these before, but according to South Korean officials, this one was solid rather than liquid fueled an important distinction as solid-fueled rockets are easier to operate, less dependent on logistical support and harder to detect. The launch followed a similar flight by a shorter-range rocket. Um, Nina, you don't require, I don't think, an advanced appreciation of semiotics to understand what the message being sent here was. The short-range rocket, that's for South Korea. The longer-range one, that's for Japan. Yeah, that's right. And then also, didn't they fire two in very quick mm-hmm. succession as well? So um, this is largely coming as a protest, isn't it, by North Korea against um, plans to continue to shore up uh, military cooperation between the United States and South Korea. Um, and as you were pointing out, 
North Korea, we know, often uses um, leverage uh, as leverage times like this when the world is focused on other conflicts, like, for instance, Ukraine, um, and also now the conflict in the Middle East. Um, but I think it is it is concerning, isn't it? Because there's a lot going on in this part of the world. Um, we've got elections in Taiwan. We've got, you know, concerns over the, you know, democracy in places like Hong Kong, um, the United States with its AUKUS uh, submarine deal to try and shore up its influence in the Indo-Pacific region. And so North Korea is reminding everybody, yes, we're here, we've got better technology um, and we're closer than ever to those kind of pseudo-prior states like, for instance, Russia and China. And the speculation that they could only have got this advance through the cooperation with Russia, that Russia may have given this technology, and it's part of a broader shift in alliances. I think uh, even though no, not much progress was ma- made in the 90s and the, the noughties and the early 10s, the, the, the North Koreans still had hopes of some sort of reapprochement with the Americans. I, I th- they've given up on that now. Mm. They have absolutely aligned themselves with the Russians. They've become more dependent, as have the Russians, post, post-invasion of Ukraine. And it's part of a broader strengthening of alliances between as as the Americans get closer and closer to the Japanese and the South Koreans and others, so the Russians get closer to the, uh, the, the, the North Koreans and the Chinese. So we're seeing as part of a broader global um, deepening of antagonism, deepening of the blocks. This is all part of that. And of course, the North, North Koreans have a, a long history of firing off missiles whenever there's either joint exercises or something else going on amongst the triumvirate there. But, but to follow that up, William, is there not a chance that if North Korea keeps this up, South Korea could give up on its own ideas of rapprochement with the North uh, and talk about acquiring a nuclear deterrent of its own. Recent polls suggest that 70% of South Koreans are now in favour of this. It used to be a very fringe opinion in South Korea, but it has, over the last year or so, become more of a mainstream idea. And it become more natural if there was ever any doubt about the American umbrella. Yeah, I think that's the key, that mm. South Korea can be... Because uh, that, that, that was the trade-off the Americans offered South yeah, Korea, yeah. basically. If you're ever attacked with nuclear weapons or attacked, we, we've got your back. And I don't see any weakening of that. Uh, hence the North Koreans wanting to fire missiles that can reach the United States mm. to test that commitment. Are you really prepared to defend South Korea if the consequence is that we... Uh, we nuke San Diego. You know, that, that'll be what their strategic calculation is. And I would see that the South Koreans probably would not go down the nuclear path as long as they have confidence in the American nuclear umbrella protecting them. And that can change because obviously we've been through a Trump administration, haven't we, where South Korea's uh, um, skin in the game here was leapfrogged and um, Donald Trump went off on his own sort of strange foreign policy um, reproachment with Mm -hmm. Kim Jong-un. And that election is coming up in about a year's time and you could have a Trump administration or you could have... um, Either not, maybe not Donald Trump, or maybe Donald Trump, or somebody with the same sort of uh, views as he has on this subject, who might turn his back on South Korea a bit more. He might do, but the the, 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 South, the North Koreans had already given up on Trump mm. by then because his his big his big summit didn't re, didn't deliver what he wanted. So they've already, you know, I think that's part of their 
calculation that rapprochement with the Americans is never going to happen. Therefore, we have to calculate something else. Well, let's now move along to something which could scarcely be less important. The Miss France contest was held on Saturday, furnishing two causes for astonished gasps. One, that Miss France is still apparently going. The other, that this year's winner, 20-year-old Yves Gilles from near Dunkirk, has, and listeners, now would be a good time to hang firmly onto your hats, quite short hair. This fact has prompted fury from angry lunatics on social media. After all, who ever heard of a French woman having an elegant pixie cut? Um, Nina, first of all... You're going to pick on me, A, because I was French educated, and B, because I've got long hair. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, well, the two perfectly good reasons to pick on anybody, clearly. Um, but furnish us with some context, if you would. I, I was I ge- genuinely, vaguely astonished to discover that Miss France is still actually a thing. Yeah. Is, is it a big deal in France? Not really. In fact, I had the same reaction to you. No, I agree. I think it's a a bigger deal over in the United States and over here in the UK. You know, beauty pageants over there are not. No, they're not. They're not really a big thing. And also, there's lots of women with short hair. Okay, I'm not one of them. I Mm. haven't had a gamine haircut since the days of the French lycée um, many moons ago when I was in the French system. Um, And um, and I think they're quite attractive. I think this is a great thing. I I don't don't have a problem with it. I also have a bit of a problem with the kind of body shaming that's in this article as well. Um, talking about how uh, this candidate for Miss France is androgynous as well. She doesn't have your kind of big hair, you know, your curves, your this, that and the other. I think it's it's great that they have a different look. I mean, I, I have, to be clear, literally no opinion about this whatsoever. But, but William, injecting my own pet theory of uh, what is wrong with everything into the discussion... Is this another example of this thing whereby human outrage has expanded in order to fill the space available in which to express it? 30 years ago, pre-social media, this does n- no one cares. There might have been one or two articles in newspapers going, oh, Miss France has short hair, what are you going to do? But if anybody actually wanted to complain to any higher authority, you might have got three or four letters in green ink uh, from very strange people sent to the organisers of the tournament who would have thrown them in the bin. Well, it certainly, it certainly magnifies it, but I have a strong opinion on this. I'm outraged, oh, absolutely outraged. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to have a Miss France competition, I happen to be married to a beautiful woman of 45. I've been married to her for 45 years, apart from with an experiment with a frizzy Afro cut when she was at university. She's had short hair for 45 years. Oh, uh, so I, I looked this I looked this woman up and, you know, I, I'm, old en- I'm, old, I'm old enough to say she's a stunner. Um, <laughs> if you're going to have a competition, she's as good a winner as I've seen in a long time. So I'm, I'm all for women with short hair and I can testify they can be very beautiful with it. Oh, lucky you. Um, <laughs> well, indeed. But Nina, Miss France uh, has a certain that her victory, despite the apparently dreadful handicap of quite short hair, uh, is somehow a victory for diversity. Is that really any less ridiculous than the row she is responding to? Seems a bit far-fetched, doesn't it? I mean, she's it? a woman with short hair. It seems a bit far-fetched. Look, the, the reality is, my observation is, after 20 years in the broadcasting sector and TV, is that we do we do live in a very 
televisual medium mm. where people are judged a lot nowadays by their looks. Not You don't just have to work in broadcasting to be judged by your looks. Look at how many people are on Instagram putting filtered pictures of themselves up. Um, you I, mean, know, I think it's, it's probably reasonable to note that, that people of roughly mine and William's gender and age are judged a lot less on our looks than some. Thank God. Oh, it's a cross some of us have to bear, Some of us it? have a face for radio. <laughs> Look, I'm, it, I shock horror. I'm wearing flat shoes. You know, oh that's another God. another thing that's taken the red carpet by storm in Cannes, isn't it, in France? I mean, I, I would any listeners who object to Nina's flat shoes, if you would take that up with Nina in But I've got long hair, that's rather, all right. Rather, well, I mean, it, 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 it swings and roundabouts. But is there any argument, Nina, at all that these tournaments can be in any meaningful sense actually progressive other than absurd relics of a mercifully bygone era. I mean, Miss France, the organisation that is, has been trying to make a thing of the fact that they now allow, and again, strap yourself in, married women, mothers, uh, women over 24, women with tattoos and transgender, as long as they're 170 centimetres tall, which is apparently a logistical issue. This is the bit I'm so glad you came to, because I'm five foot one and a half. So, (laughs) (laughs) I would... Otherwise entirely qualified. When I'm wet, thank you very much. (laughs) And I'm five foot one and a half when I'm wearing flat shoes. And I don't get anywhere near five foot seven when I'm wearing heels. They Um, they would be some heels. uh, Yeah, quite. Um, I I think it's it's really unfortunate that anybody has to conform to any sort of beauty stereotypes, um, French or not. Um, I think, yeah, beauty pageants... It, it is a forum to debate these kinds of issues and change stereotypes and expectations, particularly when it comes to beauty ideals, because for young girls nowadays, looking at these competitions, you know, as I was saying before, we live in an era where everything is so, where it's so important to look good, where everybody's judged by their looks before what they say. Um, you know, I hope we go back to a time when um, when we, we don't have to, you know, blink twice because a woman's got short hair, isn't wearing high heels and isn't particularly tall. In France or elsewhere. (laughs) Uh, To William's homeland now, and the people of Scotland are often unfairly characterised by their fellow Britons further south as doer, purse-lipped, censorious Puritans. It was that most English of authors, P.G. Woodhouse, who wrote that it is never difficult to distinguish between a Scotsman with a grievance and a ray of sunshine. As at least one of today's panellists confirms by example, the stereotype is grotesque and inaccurate, but it has been unwittingly invoked by Scotland's government Government, which is considering a tax on stadium rock shows, stinging fans for an extra quid a suite, a seat rather, to raise money to support smaller venues. Um, this sounds quite silly, William, but is it one of those things which actually does make a bit of sense when you dig into it? As Nina is probably aware, France actually already does this. They had a 3.5% levy uh, on big tickets to fund other projects. Uh, and the Music Venue Trust notes that 120 grassroots venues across the UK closed this year alone. Yeah, well, it seems to me, yeah, you, you'll know from my previous appearances on this programme that I'm, I'm, I'm not a Scott Nat fan. And it <laughs> seems like a bit of a bit of a distraction to me when... In the same week they've announced this, uh, they've also announced they've got a one billion pound deficit, uh, which will only be can only be funded by more taxes or uh, great cuts. So it strikes me as a diversion. Taylor um, Swift is going to need to sell a lot of tickets uh, in Glasgow uh, to, to make cover that, that deficit. Yep. So I, I, 
you know, I'm one for making taxis simpler, not more difficult. I think governments make taxis uh, complicated in order to um, confuse the public about what they're actually uh, actually paying. This is one area where I think you know the market can determine that if, if small music venues are, are, are going to the are going to the dogs, and that's up to the people of Scotland to turn up to them if they value them and appreciate them. Um, so I'm I'm not a I'm not a great one for for more uh, more taxis. I think this is a diversion by the SNP in the same the, the same week they're going to have to uh, persuade people how they're going to deal with a billion pound deficit. But but is there something to be said in principle, Nina, for the idea of these relatively small taxes on what you might think of as non-essential purchases? The reasoning here being that somebody has already spent, let's say, a hundred quid on a ticket for a big show, and they can cost easily that, is not going to miss another pound, uh, in the same way that quite a lot of European cities you know, throw a few euros onto the price of a hotel night, reasoning that somebody who's already stumped up 100 euros for a hotel room won't miss another three or four. I'm a bit European in this. I don't really see the big problem here. One pound, as you're pointing out, because that's what it is, one pound per ticket on really expensive tickets. I think fans probably can afford that, if, as you were saying before, Sir William, that it's well explained. Um, but I think... The broader problem for the S&P is also going to be, aren't they going to be alienating a bunch of young people if they want to get younger people to vote, give people the vote at age 16, and they're, they're, they're exactly Taylor Swift's market, aren't they? I don't know. I mean, the, can't they just get US my, I mean, firms to pay more tax? Yeah, my first instinct about uh, this as a former bureaucrat is the cost of collecting it, and, <laughs> and the cost yeah. of collecting it and distributing it. This sounds like a tax that could cost you about 40 or 50% to administer, and they're for be a bit worthless when you've already got a tax. If you really do want to support venues, it'll be quite a small amount of money. Do it out of general taxation, not invent some new tax some new tax, but I think it's a gimmick. Can I say, you mentioned France before, mm. and I'm not talking about taxes here. I want to talk about um, just the blunt instrument of a quota, um, in particular when it comes to quotas on French language music. When I was young, I remember, I think it was Jacques Chirac brought in a rule saying that French radios had to play 40-odd mm-hmm. percent French music, and we all roared with laughter at this in my French-English, um, French lycée. And actually, it spurred a lot of... It, it, this sort of cultural revival in French music. So I think sometimes, um, you know, raising money to help the music industry is not necessarily a bad thing because it is an important part of our cultural patrimony. I mean, uh, raising uh, money there, that was just making yeah. a rule that said you have to promote French sure, like, sure, of course. language. Stuff. Of course, it wasn't raising money. No, and, of course and, not. And, but it was investment, I suppose, even if it was cultural investment. That's at at around the same time, I also recall the French government apportioning special responsibility for French rock music to an actual government minister, prompting an unkind colleague of mine at Melody Maker to speculate that this person would be kept about as busy as the squadron leader of the Royal Dutch Mountain Rescue Service. Um, <laughs> we, 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 we did want to finish uh, by asking you both if there is any niche tax that you would impose. I, for one, would tax the absolute hell out of umbrellas. Uh, in fact, uh, not even as a revenue-raising thing, just to get them off the streets. But that that's just me. William, what, what, what would you tax? No, I, I, I wouldn't tax anymore. I would... Uh, I would uh, cra- crazy libertarian. I would hypothecate the stamp duty 50% of all stamp duty played on houses should be hypothecated for building social housing the biggest social problem in our in our 
century. That's actually, by the standards of suggestions from daily panellists, relatively sensible. I'm, I'm sorry, I apologise. <laughs> in London, yeah. I apologise. Um, OK, well, we've, we've solved the housing crisis, so that was not a bad half hour's work. And Nina, what, what would you tax? I wouldn't want to tax anything anymore. No. I live in. We we pay so much tax here. Um, we're we're drowning in tax, aren't we? In this part of Northern Europe and some parts of Northern Europe. Um, I think part of the problem with is, the is conversation it, of tax is that, um, you know, uh, people become so disincentivized. <laughs> is, is there not an arbitrary, whimsical, or even punitive tax you would like to impose just on a particular thing or type of person who annoys you? I have other thoughts on this as well. Um, Tax on nonsense. A tax on nonsense. I would certainly. I always have a hundred pound tax on anyone who puts the seat on uh, their, their feet on the seat in the tube. I mean, that would be an instant f- tax on that. It's on called that. a fine, isn't it? I think it is called a fine. Yes, <laughs> but, but, only a hundred pounds for a for a foot foot. Well, you've got you liberal. Most <laughs> most people wouldn't have a hundred pounds on them. I doubt sure the enforcers would have a a, a cash reader, of course, a card reader. <laughs> That's, that's two problems you've solved in the space of three minutes, William. You're on a, you are on a roll. But for the moment, Sir William Patey and Nina Dos Santos, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, Christmas puddings have long been a staple on the festive tables of the UK and beyond. Clue in the name. The suet-based dessert is filled with raisins and other dried fruit, as well as being doused in lashings of brandy. It is then set alight, a ritual that pudding purists who are a thing, apparently, await with bated breath every year. However, in more recent times, Christmas pudding has been getting a bad rap. It is often seen as a stuffy and old-fashioned take on the taste of the season. Monocle's Monica Lillis disagrees, and here she explains why we shouldn't give up on the Christmas pudding just yet. This year has been a sad one for Christmas pudding. The traditional dessert has been dissed by celebrity chefs who believe we should substitute it with something chocolatey. It's even being reported that supermarkets are subbing their stock with certain aforementioned Italian cakes. Here in London, Monocle's staff in particular are struggling to sing its praises. I must admit, Christmas pudding isn't my favourite. My grandmother used to make them many years ago and they weren't very good. Legendarily, one year she had to bury it in the back garden in Adelaide and we never let hear the end of it. Even if you set fire to it, I still find it disgusting. However, it's my view that the world is wrong on this matter and I have decided enough is enough. Today, I'm here to tell you why you should refrain from scrapping figgy pudding from your tables this year. Firstly, Christmas pudding is one of Britain's most traditional festive delicacies and no Christmas dinner would be complete without one. The humble dessert once began life as pottage. This was a kind of broth which included raisins and other dried fruits, spices and wine. The mixture was then thickened with breadcrumbs and ground almonds, not too dissimilar to the mince pies of yesteryear, which often included meat or meat stock. It wasn't until the Victorian era that the pudding we know and love became a staple at this time of year. Despite being conservative folk, the Victorians believed that Christmas should be celebrated and so they started the tradition of Stir Up Sunday. The ritual saw Victorian families make their pudding on the fifth Sunday before Christmas. Each family member was supposed to stir the mixture from east to west to honour the journey of the three wise men. It was also thought to bring luck to the family in the coming year. 
the pudding would come to epitomise Christmas and take its place on tables across the country. Another thing that makes Christmas pudding so exciting is the act of setting it ablaze. Picture this. Christmas Day has arrived. Father Christmas has been and gone, the turkey and pigs and blankets have been gobbled, and the rounded pudding that has been resting for months is ready for its moment in the spotlight. Open the cupboard and take out your favourite heatproof plate and douse the pudding in brandy. Not the good stuff, though. Someone will want to drink that later. With the strike of a match, the pudding goes up in flames. Flickering in the dark of a cold winter evening, the blue inferno dances across the plate and the rich, delicious smells of alcohol, treacle and apple fill the room. Once the flame simmers and you're left with a warm, steamy pudding, it's time to grab the tub of thick brandy butter from your fridge. Once upon a time, you may have thought this dessert wasn't for you. But now your taste buds have evolved and you could handle the stronger, boozy tastes you once shied away from. The warm, fruity notes and gooey textures blend perfectly with the cooling, spirituous brandy cream. It's an acquired taste for sure, but it's one you can only find at Christmas, and one I always look forward to. Well, there's only really one thing left to do. Eat the lot. For Monocle Radio, I'm Monica Lillis. Thank you, Monica. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Nina Dos Santos and Sir William Patey. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Neoma Aque. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Listener.